there were cultural issues. It was complicated. But the Apostle Paul in the wider book of Ephesians argues that underneath all those tensions, the Jewish community and the non-Jewish community hated each other because both of them in slightly different ways were alienated from God. Alienation from God, according to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians, is the root problem underneath the hostility. The conflict between uh, the Jewish community and the Gentile community was the presenting issue, but the deeper root cause was alienation from God. So, you know, if, if you've ever gone to counseling, uh, maybe you go to the counseling and you're like, hey, I've got an anger problem. Uh, the counselor is not just going to talk about anger, almost certainly. At some point, you're going to talk about your family of origin in some way, right? Because anger may be a presenting issue, but something like family of origin issues is going to be the, the deeper root cause. And that's a little bit of Paul's argument in the book of Ephesians. The root cause of our hostility towards each other is alienation from God. Now, part of the thing that makes this so important and powerful is that in Paul's day, when uh, Jewish people and Gentile people became Christians, that is to say, when Jewish people and Gentile people uh, found that Jesus' death and his resurrection had opened up a new door, a new path to amnesty and pardon and forgiveness and reconciliation with God. And when they said yes to that path of reconciliation with God, and when they found themselves restored and in a new animating relationship with God, it transformed and shifted and changed the way they related to each other. So uh, Jewish people and Gentile people who used to hate each other all of a sudden found themselves in one family within the church. They found a new type of unity. But it was a unity not based upon their culture, not so much based upon their background. It was a unity entirely based on knowing Jesus together. And that unity is a sign or an indicator that Jesus is restoring his church. Um, Festo Kevindra, uh, I mentioned him a few weeks ago. He was a bishop in the church of Uganda. And he's a bit of a hero. Um, and in one of his books, he writes about some of the transformations that occurred in his life when he became a Christian. And, and he said this, way back in 1939, he became a Christian and, and he writes this. One of the beautiful things was that I was welcomed equally by the saints of various tribes. And I now felt entirely different towards the people of other tribes than I had ever felt before. I knew now that we were all one and it was beautiful. The cross that had rescued them had also rescued me. And therefore the tribal barrier was gone. Now friends, that is a miracle. It was a miracle in Paul's day. It was a miracle for Festo. Uganda was terribly divided by tribe. And it's a miracle that Jesus always performs when he is restoring his church. He reconciles people to, to his father. And therefore, instead of hating one another and naturally relating to each other like spiritual cannibals, like what was happening in Micah's day, instead of that, we begin to love one another because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And I want to say this, Emmanuel, can you imagine if the church in our city and the church in our nation became famous for that kind of reconciliation with each other? Wouldn't that be glorious? 
And I get to tell you that that's a miracle that Jesus wants to do among us. But it's a miracle that only happens when our eyes are unflinchingly focused on Jesus. Let me quote from Bishop Festo again. He said this, my brothers told me we are united, Festo, as long as the gaze of each one of us is fixed on Jesus. And as long as we allow Jesus daily to wash our dirty feet, meaning to forgive us day in and day out and to walk in that independence upon Jesus Christ. That's when their unity obtains. Now, that's Jesus's plan of restoration for the church. He wants us to lock eyes with him. And as we do that, we will begin to love each other and we will begin to demonstrate to the world that reconciliation is a real thing and that it is beautiful. And I can't imagine a more important way that we could serve our world. Okay, when Jesus restores his church, the first one thing he does is he moves us from disintegration of sin to unity that orbits around him. But then secondly, when Jesus restores his church, he moves us from immaturity to maturity. Look back at verse 13. It says that Jesus wants to bring us to, quote, mature manhood. What in the world does that mean? Well, thankfully, Paul keeps writing. Look at verse 14. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, and by the craftiness and deceitful schemes. Now, to understand this verse and what Paul's saying, you have to have two images in your mind. You have to have the image of an immature uh, adult who is acting like a child, on the one hand. And on the other hand, you have to uh, have the image of a boat that's just being pummeled by winds and the storm. Keep both those images in your mind and then go back to Micah. Because in Micah's day, Israel was hopelessly immature. And part of it was this, they were volatile and they were fearful in part because they simply did not know who to follow. So there were lots of pressures, right? Um, the Assyrian Empire, remember this? They were invading. Assyrian Empire was undefeated at that point. Uh, Israel's nation was in crisis. The economy was collapsing. Their religious life had gone to pieces. And all of Israel's leaders seemed to be pointing in different directions. Uh, their prophets were proclaiming nonsense. Their business leaders were corrupt. Their political leaders were ridiculous. And all the leaders of Israel were everywhere pointing in different directions, but they were all united in the fact that they were pointing to stupid. They were pointing to dumb. And it sowed panic and chaos. Now, one of the exceptions was Micah himself, the prophet. Micah himself, the prophet, in chapter 7, verse 7, the last uh, verse in our reading, he says that his eyes, in the midst of the chaos, his eyes are fixed, steady state upon his God. He's confident that God's going to see him through. His eyes are focused upon the Lord. Now, there's a certain kind of confident courage that Micah exhibits while the storm is raging around him because his eyes are fixed upon his God. And it's not that Micah's an escapist. He's not checking out. He's in it. He's right in the middle of the storm. But Micah is in the storm, but he's not defined by the chaos. 
He is walking steadily with his eyes fixed upon the Lord. And that's a little bit what Paul is describing by this concept of maturity. When the church is mature, we're not tossed around by the storm. Um, think about, again, an adult who's acting like a kid and is just erratic. That's an image of immaturity. Or think about a boat that's just being pummeled back and forth by every wave. That's an image of maturity. But the opposite is imagine a boat with a ballast, with weight in the middle of its hull. And that weightiness causes it to gain stability so that when the waves crash against it, it stays on course. That's an image of maturity. Where do you get that from, Jim? Well, look at verse 15. We'll no longer be tossed to and fro, but rather, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Now, let me try to explain what I think this means. We are to lock eyes on Jesus Christ. As that happens, he builds unity between us. And then we keep locking our eyes on Jesus, and he will lead us with courage and with wisdom through the screaming chaos of our world. As our eyes look at Jesus, we'll know what stupid is, and we'll stay away from it, and we'll know what dumb is, and we'll say, no, thank you, but our eyes will be fixed upon Jesus Christ. That's how Paul got through it. Remember, he's writing this from prison. He's been incarcerated for a long time and Rome was pressing him and the Jewish leadership was pressing him and even some of the Christians were pressing him. What kept him from freaking out and breaking down? Well, it's the same thing that has kept all great Christians on course throughout all ages. I think of William Wilberforce. You ever heard of him? I hope you have. Um, uh, he was a member of parliament uh, in the late 18th century and early 19th century in Britain. Um, and he was, uh, he spent decades fighting the slave trade. And it was not popular. What kept him on course? Or I think of somebody like Mother Teresa, who lived amongst the poor. And in her own soul, as I understand it, suffered years of spiritual depression. What kept her on course? What kept them from uh, uh, freaking out and breaking down? What kept them uh, solid and secure and on course in the midst of the raging waves? And what will keep us on course? Friends, the answer is maturity. It's when we lock eyes on Jesus Christ. Verse 15, his truth and his love create a kind of spiritual ballast within the hull of our ship so that your soul and whole churches become... Uh, solid and steady in the midst of the storm. It's not that we escape the storm, it's that we sail through it with a ballast and a weight that keeps us steady and on course following Jesus, saying no to this and no to that and yes to Jesus Christ. And as Jesus's truth and love increases, that ballast becomes more weighty so that we stay on course. And this is super important for us, friends. Emmanuel, we have got to be a people of maturity, at least because the wind around us is not winding down. And friends, if we can walk through this season of history with a unity and a maturity that orbits always around Jesus Christ, friends, that's how we will be of great benefit to the world. 
And part of the reason I say that is that this next gift that Jesus wants to give us, through all of this, Jesus wants to make us a church that resembles his beauty. This is the last shift I want to show you. Jesus moves us from distorting God to displaying his beauty. Go back to Micah again. In Micah's day, we've talked about this, Israel was super religious, right? They talked about God all the time. But when they talked about God, they were constantly distorting God. Uh, they twisted God and made him in their own image. Well, when Jesus restores his church, he reverses that. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, Jesus works to restore his church to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And that's the third goal that Jesus has for his church. Now, it sounds odd in our ears, and the idea is at least this. Jesus wants to make the church resemble himself and share in his own beauty. Now, to grasp this, imagine a human body. Uh, Paul says in verse 15, Jesus is the head of the body. And then in verse 16, he describes how the body is supposed to work. This is a healthy functioning body. Verse 16, from the head, the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each work is working properly, which each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now think about that image. Jesus is the head. The church is the body. Now, on the one hand, that means that the church is completely dependent upon Jesus Christ. A church without Jesus, not focused on Jesus, is a decapitated corpse. Every ounce of life that the church has comes from its connection to Jesus Christ, its head. But on the other hand, it also means that the church, as the body of Jesus, is meant to display Jesus. Um, bodies display persons, right? What? Well, I'm, you can't know me unless I've got a body, right? That's straightforward. That's obvious. And it's a, in a similar way, Jesus is known through his body, the church. But the only way that that can happen verse 6, 15 and 16, is if each member of the church, each individual and each corporate body of the church, each member is vitally connected to Jesus Christ. We, each of us, must have an animating personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We have to, each of us, be constantly receiving spiritual life from Jesus, forgiveness, restoration, uh, love that we cannot generate ourselves. We must, each of us, be receiving that spiritual life from Jesus Christ. Pause. Do you receive that spiritual life from Jesus Christ? It's more than religion. Don't ever imagine it's just religion. To be a Christian is to receive spiritual life, forgiveness, and love from Jesus Christ, moment by moment and breath by breath. And if you do not know what that means, oh, please, we have a wonderful, Jesus has a wonderful gift to give you. And don't rest until you begin to receive that life. But then receiving that spiritual life, we get to share it with others. We get to serve each other. We get to love each other. We even get to love people whom we have good reason to hate. And when that happens, you will look at the church, but you will see the beauty of Jesus. And friends, don't you want that to be true of our church? And that's where Jesus wants to take us. 
that's the goal of Jesus restoring his church. And I hope you can see how important it is that Jesus restore his church. Can you imagine how beautiful it would be if our nation and our city looked at us and saw Jesus's beauty? Looked at Emmanuel and saw Jesus' beauty. Looked at Emmanuel and the way Emmanuel relates to other churches in our city that are very different from ours. They could see Jesus' beauty there. And that's where Jesus wants to take us. And that's part of what we're going to explore as we walk through Ephesians. But then with this, there comes a warning. And the warning is that we will only display the beauty of Jesus Christ if each and every one of us in the church is healthy, connected to Jesus Christ, united to the church, growing in maturity. It means that every one of us needs to understand that there is no such thing as private and secret sin. And there is no such thing as private and secret holiness. Because even my secret and private sin and yours, even if no one ever finds out about it, we will end up wounding the church around us because we'll cause the body to stop working properly. And on the other hand, your secret holiness and mine will end up contributing to the restoration of the church, even if no one finds out about it, because it will mean that one more member of the church is working properly. We all need all of us to be reconciled to Christ and to grow up. And this, this leads us back to where we started. Remember the question, are you cynical about the church or are you tempted to be? And there is undoubtedly reason to be cynical about the church. But despite all of that, Emmanuel, cynicism is not our path. And I wanna ask you to exchange your cynicism or the, even the temptation toward it Exchange that for godly lament. It is right for us to lament and grieve the way the church today sometimes looks far too much like Israel in Micah's day. And I take that from Micah. Micah chapter 7 is a lament. Woe is me, says Micah. He's weeping and he's crying for the state of the church. And we, can, we must do that too because the church today is disintegrated and immature in so many ways. And very often we distort the God whom we claim to represent. We should lament that. But when you lament the corporate failures of the church, don't forget also to lament your own participation in it. Because while God is never complicit with the corruptions of the church, we almost always are. And let that lament lead to your own repentance. Repent at the foot of the cross of Christ. Receive his forgiveness again. And as you receive Jesus's forgiveness, you will find that Jesus makes himself to be your head. He will, he will be the source of your spiritual life. He will forgive you and he will restore you. And then he will lead you out to love those maybe whom you have good reason to hate. And as you live more and more by the grace of Jesus Christ, his truth and his love will become weighty upon your soul and it will become a ballast so that you will no longer be defined nor set off course by the storms of the troubled moment. But it won't stop there because then you will look around and you will find that you are not alone but rather you are surrounded by a family that is made up of every tribe and every nation every language and every, re every region of the world. And you will be surrounded by a family that is larger than your capacity to imagine it. 
And you will find out that that family is called the Church of Jesus Christ. It is his body for which he gave his life. Jesus loves his body very much. So friends, while we're busy lamenting and repenting, we will find that Jesus is busy restoring and building his church. And it will be a church that is beautiful because it shares in his beauty. Friends, that's where Jesus wants to take us. So will you consent to that work? Let's ask Jesus to take us there. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.